the sun rises over the San Joaquin Valley, California. Today is September 4th, 2020. It should be no surprise to us that evidence shows the use of marijuana during pregnancy affects the development of the nervous system of the fetus. More than 500,000 live births were analyzed retrospectively from the Canadian Birth Registry, and it showed incidence of autism spectrum disorder was higher in children born from mothers who use marijuana during pregnancy compared with non-exposed children. 4 versus 2.4 diagnosis per thousand person years. Incidence of intellectual disability and learning disorders was also higher in marijuana exposed children. So remember to counsel your pregnant patients to avoid marijuana. Do you think that patients with obesity have a higher prevalence of musculoskeletal pain? You think? And what's a common prescription for chronic pain? Yes, you guessed it. It's opioids. So you think obesity and opioids are linked? Well, articles published in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine, AJPM, and Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, showed a clear link between obesity and opioid use. Patients who are overweight have 24% incidence of long-term opioid use, while the incidence in patients with severe obesity was 158%. Again, incidence is 24% in overweight versus 154% in severe obesity. That's crazy. The most common chronic pain associated with obesity and opioid use was back pain and joint pain. Now you know it, two of the most popular epidemics, obesity and opioids, go hand in hand. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California, sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista, providing compassionate and affordable care since 1971. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Winston S. Churchill. Success is a very complex term. Success for you may be different than success for me. Success is not final, just as failure is not fatal. Our life has ups and downs, and that's what makes life interesting. And today, I would like to thank all our listeners for their support in our mission to educate and sometimes to entertain you. We do our best. Uh, sometimes we might be funny, sometimes sometimes not so funny. But I'm thankful for everybody who is listening to us. It hasn't been easy to produce this podcast. I'm thankful for all the brave residents who have overcome their fears to record in front of a microphone. Sometimes it can be frightening, but I'm thankful for their efforts. This week, we have reached some milestones in our podcast. For example, we had our download number 1,000. So that means that 1,000 people or 1,000 times our podcast has been listened to. And today, the last resident of the 2019-2020 group, Dr. Garmendia, he's going to be participating in the main part of the podcast. 
I was planning to end this season of the podcast, but I'm happy to inform that some people offered to record some more material. So we might have an additional episode before closing this season. I'm planning to change our format after hearing some suggestions from our residents. So now you're going to listen to the interview to Dr. Garmen Diaz, some additional recordings that we did with medical students and some other residents. Hope you enjoy it. Today we have with us Dr. Garmen He's my friend. Let me introduce him to you today. I'm happy that he's here to share some of his wisdom with us. Dr. Garmendia, we're closing the season of the podcast with you, so you are the cherry on the cake. Oh, thank you for that and also for the challenge. So no pressure. Let's well, just, we tried. Let's relax and have fun. Okay. <laughs> okay, Dr. Garmendia, uh, introduce yourself. Who are you? Well, uh, Dr. Arreza, thank you so much for the invitation to the podcast. Um, as you said, my name is Fermin Garmendia. I'm a resident, currently a third-year resident of the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Program. I'm so excited and so a uh, blessing for being part of the program. Um, I'm Cuban. I was born, born and raised in Cuba, where I spent almost all my life. I came to this country of oh, two years, two U.S. in 2010, after 30 years, and then I realized that I can continue to pursue my dreams to becoming a doctor. Then after several years of um, some sacrifice, what can I say? My dream came true. And um, being a family medicine doctor, it is a privilege. It is diverse and it is challenging. Great. It's great to know that you are happy that now that you have this opportunity to practice your profession. And But tell me about your hobbies. What do you like doing in your free time? Uh, oh, yeah, of course. After I have the opportunity, I love to do some, um, I have some hobbies. I like watch movie. I like to go to a, a good restaurant, passing time with friends, that's important one. And also I enjoy driving. That's, I think it's what I enjoy the most. I have a short family yet. It's just me, my wife, and I have a dog too. And we like to explore. And, go to several places and let me tell you for sure California is the opportunity to do that. California is beautiful. I still have a big list of places to visit. You know what this weekend do you know what I want to do? I want to go and drive between Big Sur and I think it's Monterey. I think that freeway I heard that is beautiful. So wow. that's going to be my goal this weekend. It could be. So uh, if you haven't been there probably you should go if you like driving. Oh, so sure. um well, let's let's go to the topic. Tell me what do you learn this week? I know that you have interest in ophthalmology and just um, tell me what do you learn this week or what you want to review this week. Yeah, you're right, Dr. Reza. I, I had the opportunity being in my country in Cuba to do some kind of fellowship in ophthalmology. Then I like to talk a little bit that this is sometimes could be simple. I'm talking about the subconjunctival hemorrhage. Then, yeah, I can see the picture of the, uh, the face of some of my college. It's nothing weird, or maybe it is not the most interesting interest topic, topic, but let me tell you for sure, for patient, it is. It could be scary. Patient, when they realize they have this blood shot in the eye, patient 
usually come immediately to see a doctor and looking for some reassurance or looking for something else. So the subconjunctival hemorrhage. So that's a common condition. And like you said, it can be scary. So um, so tell me, what, how do people know that they have this subconjunctival hemorrhage? Well, um, as I said before, um, usually this is painless. Patients are asymptomatic. Several times patients woke up in the morning, they look into the mirror and then boom, they realize that it has this bloodshot, scary blood in the eye. And other time, just when somebody else realizes about the problem and then notify the patient that have some blood in the eye. Okay, so people might tell the patient, hey, you, you have a red eye and it's scary. So, um, but then, so you, what, what kind of treatment can you offer these patients? Well, um, for, for this kind of medical condition, as I said before, usually this is a benign medical condition. Uh, just having, all right, we can say that like 90% of the time it's just idiopathic or sometimes coming related, related with a Valsalva effect. This is, could be due to coughing, sneezing, Straining. This is a very common patient with constipation. Sometimes patient with vomiting. That happened too. And this is what happened, right? Well, let's talk a, a little bit about some anatomical uh, reference about the eye. So and tell me about the anatomy of the conjunctiva. Uh, yes, Dr. Ras. What is the conjunctiva? This is no more like a, the wall. That's like thinner wall that cover the white part of the eye that we call a sclera. Okay. Um, what is the function of this conjunctiva? just a simple one it's just protection and also allow the movement of the eye inside the orbital okay so the conjunctiva is, um, has a lot of vessels capillaries right yeah this is what it happened the conjunctiva has a lot of tiny blood vessels and then when this is happening this kind of valsalva maneuver this kind of valsalva fail like a semi before patient with uh, after a physical activity or coughing this vessel can break and then that results in subconjunctival hemorrhage. What happened? The blood get contained into that sac that the subconjunctival space and then take several weeks to be reassured. That's important for why we have to reassure that patient that this is won't disappear like a right away. You have to be patient. Okay. So even rubbing your eyes very like strongly can cause subconjunctival hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. So I have a friend, he came to work one day. Uh, he was not a doctor. I was practicing in, in another profession at that time, but he came with a um, like a very red, bloody eye. And um, he said that all he did during the weekend was to move, you know, from one house to the other. And that's, he just woke up with the red eye. So it was a subconjunctival hemorrhage. So what are some causes of this, uh, this condition? Okay, as I mentioned before, um, just happens. Mm -hmm. It's 90% of the time, we can say 90% of the time, just idiopathic. And then sometimes just related with Valsalva maneuver. And all the time could be related with trauma. As you mentioned before, patients that wear contact lenses are more susceptible for breaking these tiny blood vessels of the conjunctiva. What happens every time patients with contact lenses, they 
ruining the eye for this kind of dry eye sensation. And maybe if we're going back to 10, 15 years ago when the patient was were using this kind of hard contact lenses, of course, the risk of trauma was even worse. So what conditions like are, are risk factors for having a, a subconjunctival hemorrhage? Exactly. Uh, for us as a, as a primary doctor, it's important one uh, to know that in addition to this idiopathic cause of the subconjunctival hemorrhage, patients with diabetes, hypertension, they are, they, ha they are more susceptible to develop this kind of medical condition. Also, patients with COPD, and of course the reason is the same, patient is coughing more often and then the patient has more predisposition for the blood vessels of the conjunctival break. And also people who are taking blood thinners, right? Like aspirin, coumadin. Oh, excellent. Excellent cash, Dr. Reyes. Mm -hmm. People that have some kind of um, bleeding disorder, people that is taking any kind of uh, blood thinner like comodin or aspirin, they are more susceptible, of course, of developing this kind of medical condition. So what do you have to do uh, when you see a patient with this, um, with this condition? What do you have to do? Like, Where, what do you assess? Okay, that's kind of funny. Patient came so scary for what is happening in the eye. And then, as I said before, multiple times or almost all the time, it's just reassuring the patient everything is going to be okay. This is going to take some time. You can use some kind of artificial tears and that's it. But we need to be sure exactly what is happening with the patient. We have to do a deep interview and try to rule out any trauma or the patient complaining about loss of vision rec recently or acute patient without a with discharge from the eye, photophobia or presence of foreign body sensation into the eye. So a foreign body sensation, okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, they have to have normal vision to, to have a subconjunctival hemorrhage. If they don't have normal vision, um, you know, it has to be something else, something different. Exactly. So, then I would recommend, okay, in case that we are seeing a patient with subconjunctival hemorrhage, and the patient has any or, or any of this complaint or the patient uh, had a trauma, I recommend do the exam for the patient, the, the eye exam for the patient. It will be great if we have a sleep lamp uh, for better visualization of the eye and all the structure of the eye. But at least we have to do the exam with the magnifying glass and also we can stain the eye with fluorescent. If we had a suspicion for trauma associated with any corneal injury or sclera or abrasion, that's going to be great to allow any more complicated condition. Yeah, and uh, I remember a patient I had, uh, he came to the clinic with a very red, beefy eye. He was a patient with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and he said that his vision was um, decreased on that eye. So I immediately sent him to the ER. Uh, unfortunately, he lost his vision on that eye, but definitely it was more complicated than this. It was not just a simple subconjunctival hemorrhage. It was something deeper in the eye. So if the vision is not normal, you know, that's a red flag. Send the patient to the ER. And when do you think we should send the patients to an ophthalmologist, Dr. Garmendia? Okay, that's that's a very important question, Dr. Riaza. Okay, anytime when we have suspicion of patient has a leaking eye or any intraorbital penetration or any sign of trauma or ephema. High ephema? 
Yeah, okay. That's the blood in the anterior chamber of the eyes. Okay. That's important one that's jeopardized for the eye. Could, that could be the be predisposition of risk of infection of this patient. Also, we need to send the patient to a further evaluation by ophthalmology, patient with conjunctival uh, laceration, more than one centimeter length that will require suturing, or patient with falling body, a body in, a, that is stuck deeply in the conjunctival space or associated with conjunctival laceration. So that's great. I think mm. um, you have given us very important information. You know, subconjunctival hemorrhage is a symptom that can be benign on the artificial tears and they have they have to have normal vision, the patients. And uh, you gave us the, the reason to send him to the ophthalmologist. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great way to finish that part. So tell me, what where do you get this information from? All right. Um, this information uh, uh, you can find in in all today, I think is the best way to find any information about anything. And also I went to the American Ac Academy of Ophthalmology. Then I found this uh, very short but important article about the subconjunctival hemorrhage. And you can find details about the articles that Dr. Garmendia consulted uh, at the end of this uh, podcast. We're going to publish the articles that he read. And, um, you know, I I thank you, Dr. Garmendia, for being here. Thank you. For uh, explaining this topic to us. So is there any final words that you want to say? No, I'm so glad for being participating in the podcast with you, Dr. Reyes, and for the rest of our, my college faculty. And just thank you for listening. And for me, it was a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Dr. Garmendia. Have a nice week, guys. Bye-bye. Oh, you too. Speaking medical. The medical term of the day is amaurosis fugax. I don't know about you, but for me, this word sounds like a mystifying spell that can wake up the dead. Amaurosis fugax comes from the Greek amaurosis, meaning dark, and the Latin fugax, meaning transient. Therefore, it refers to a transient loss of vision in one or both eyes. Oh, I thought this word would have a deeper meaning. I first encountered this word during my internal medicine rotation when a patient presented with unilateral body weakness, facial drooping, and a transient loss of vision. One of the causes of amaurosis fugax is due to thromboembolism that blocks the ophthalmic artery and the retinal arterioles which results in a transient loss of vision. These symptoms can be seen in a patient with stroke. Until next time, Amorosis Fuga! Hello everyone, my name is Lee. I'm a third year medical student and this week I would like to introduce another medical word, anisocoria. I will give you a brief introduction of anisocoria and soon I will expand on this topic. So today we have three levels of definition depending on how hungry your brain is. First level, anisocoria is when a patient has unequal pupils. The second level is defining anisocoria by explaining the etymology of its word. So anisocoria comes from the Greek an, which is not, iso, which is equal, cor, which is people of the eye, and the Latin ia. 
as disease pathology or abnormal condition. Our last level, as well as the medical definition of anisocoria, is defined by an impaired pupillary dilation via the parasympathetic nervous system or constriction by the sympathetic nervous system. But there's more that meets the eye, and finding out which people is the abnormal one may be challenging. So what can give you clues are considered in its history by the patient of ocular trauma, old photos showing ptosis, ocular deviation, chronic anisocoria, topical medication use, drugs or toxin exposure, associated ocular and neurological signs and symptoms. So take a breath. Don't worry. I will teach you how and which eye is considered the abnormal one. There are some physical exam findings we can use to differentiate which eye is considered the bad eye because it's not always what meets the eye, nor is it always a small one. So stay tuned and learn more about Anasakura on your next episode. Hi, this is Dr. Carranza on our section, Spanish, por favor. This week's word is matriz. Matriz comes from the Latin word matrix, which means mother. And it's used to describe a cavity inside females in which babies are carried. Yes, matriz means uterus. You will most likely use this term when you want to ask if the patient has their uterus versus if they've had a hysterectomy. You can say, señora, ¿todavía tiene su matriz? Which means, ma'am, do you still have your uterus? Another instance in which you may hear the word matriz is when asking about uterine cancer. You can ask, ¿Ha tenido cáncer de matriz? Which means, have you had uterine cancer? Instead of matriz, you can also use the more formal term, útero. But most people will understand you better when you say matriz. Now you know the Spanish word of the week, matriz. For your sanity, what is civilization? Someone once asked anthropologist Margaret Mead what she considered to be the first evidence of civilization. She answered, a human thigh bone with a healed fracture found in an archaeological site 15,000 years old. Why not tools for hunting? Or religious artifacts? Or primitive forms of communal self-governance? Mead points out that for a person to survive a broken femur, the individual had to have been cared for long enough for that bone to heal. Others must have provided shelter, protection, food, and drink over an extended period of time for this kind of healing to be possible. The great anthropologist Margaret Mead suggests that the first indication of human civilization is care over time for one who is broken and in need, evidenced through a fractured thigh bone that was healed. This story was told by Ira Bayok, an authority on palliative medicine, in his book, The Best Care Possible, A Physician's Quest to Transform Care Through the End of Life. A nurse is on her way home, pulls a thermometer out of her pocket, looks at it for a second and says, Great. Now some asshole's got my pen. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. This next one's from my wife. How many optometrists does it take to change a light bulb? One or two? One or two? Alright. I, I got I got a dark one, but we can save it for another week. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's bad enough where we might need to like separate it out. <laughs> okay, stay tuned for next week. <laughs> now we conclude our episode number 26, I Know. Dr. Garmandia briefly explained the diagnosis and treatment for subconjunctival hemorrhage. You may say, I know but you for sure learned something new today. Zhang surprised us with his clear explanation of amaurosis fugax, or sudden loss of vision, and Lee explained how to say unequal pupils in an educated way, anisocoria. And without warning, we went from the eye to the uterus, and Dr. Carranza taught us the Spanish word matriz. How do you like our reflection about human civilization? And to close, Dr. Saito gave us a piece of humor to please our audience. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at rbresidency at clinicasuravista.org or visit our website, riobravofmrp.org backslash qweek. This podcast was created with educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza, Fermin Garmendia, Claudia Carranza, Sheng Sai Song, Li Liang, Lisa Manzanares, and Steven Seto. Audio by Saraj Ramrutia. See you next week. <laughs>